Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I'm excited about today's show because i I think this is like the first real time that we're going to get to dive into Georgia's 2022 football opponents. The Scouting the Enemy series is coming. That's where we give you an in-depth preview of each Power 5 team on the schedule. That's coming up very, very soon. The plan is to have the first of those episodes up for you guys on July 15th. That's a little bit later of a start on the Scouting Enemy series than we normally get, but the reason for that is I will actually be going on vacation, leaving on July 4th, actually, through the 14th, and as soon as I get back, literally, I mean, I'll be getting back in, it's going to be like a 9, 10-hour flight, something crazy like that, I forget exactly how long, but a long flight. It'll be essentially overnight, I will be arriving at like 6.30 a.m. in Atlanta, I'll be driving home back to Athens, and then I will be sitting down and recording as soon as I get home so that I don't fall asleep and can kind of get back on my normal schedule here with a time zone shift. And then I will have it up for you guys on July 15th, maybe even late July 14th, but it'll be coming very soon. It's coming, I promise. In the meantime, I've spent this past week pre-recording episodes to upload for you guys while I am on vacation, I promise you there's going to be content. I'm not going to leave you guys hanging. That's one thing that I will never do is I will never leave you guys hanging. Say what you want about the podcast. Might not be the best podcast in the world. I give it everything I possibly have to make it the best Georgia podcast out there. But obviously that's subjective. But what I do feel confident in saying is that we never leave you guys hanging, whether it's a holiday, whether I'm going on vacation. We have content for you guys, and next week, the next week and a half, will be no different. I actually just moved last week, so kind of got behind, couldn't do anything, was moving all week, couldn't get any work done, so I am in like overdrive mode right now, trying to record episodes this week and get them ready for the, like the next week and a half, two weeks, so a lot of stuff going on in my life, but you will have content, I assure you of that. I feel a responsibility to make sure you have that content, so content you will have. But today on the show... What I want to do is get an early start on those Scouting the Enemy episodes by ranking the games on our 2022 football schedule by difficulty. And in the process, take an early look at each of those games and give you a little preview 
of those episodes coming over the next month and a half where we will go much more in depth. We'll take those deep dives into each of these teams, but we'll give you a little sprinkle today. We'll give you a little bit of information, a little bit of something, talk about each of these teams a little bit and talk about the schedule at large while we're at it. So let's go ahead and do this, guys. We've got a lot of teams to talk about. We're going through every single game. That's 12 games. Let's go ahead and do this. And let's start with the least difficult and work our way to the most difficult. I'm not going to spend as much time on these first couple games because these are the games that most of you really don't care about. I'm going to spend far more time, going to far more detail, the further we get down this list and get these teams that do have more of a chance to give us some difficult, to give us some trouble during the 2022 football season. Let's start it off from the top. The only FCS team on the schedule. I think this is obvious. The least difficult game on this schedule, at least on paper coming into this season, will be the Samford Bulldogs. They were 4-7 in the Southern Conference last year, which was good enough for 8th place in the Southern Conference, which is an FCS conference, if you're not aware of that. They do not even play FBS football. It's not even a Group of 5 conference. So Samford... Coming into Sanford Stadium, don't get confused there, Samford, Sanford, it's going to be lights out for them very early on in this game. In fact, this is the first home game inside the friendly confines of Sanford Stadium post-national championship, so you know there's going to be some sort of celebration going on. There'll be some way to honor that team prior to the game. There'll be some sort of video montage, and I know they already raised the banner during the, uh, I guess, the official parade celebration or whatnot back in January, but I'm sure they'll kind of do that all over again and get the fans fired up, get the juices flowing. So not good for Samford. Samford is going to get murdered. That's what's going to happen. Coming in number 11, and this one was tough. There were two teams that were vying for this spot as the second least difficult game on our 2022 schedule, but coming in number 11 are the Vanderbilt Commodores, 0-8 in SEC play last season. Not only were they 0-8 in SEC play, not only were they defeated in SEC play, they were outscored by 26 points per game in conference. That's almost four touchdowns. So on average, they were losing conference games by nearly four touchdowns a game. In fact, they got outscored by Georgia and Florida. Yes, we were the national champion. We know that. Florida, not the national champion. Florida fired their coach. They were outscored by those two teams in the SEC East by a combined margin of 104 to 0. Defensively, they were a trainer. They were good on offense. They were not good anywhere on the field. But defensively, they gave up a 50% success rate. Guys, that is abysmal. What that means is... Half the time, half the plays that opposing offenses ran were considered successful plays. And what that means, success rate, I've used this stat plenty of times before, but I know we have some newer listeners. So just to run this by you guys again real quick, success rate is this. So on first down, do you get 50% or more of the yards needed to get a first down? On second down, do you get 70% or more yards needed to get a a first down? On third down, do you get 100% of the yards needed to get a first down? That, that's really all that is. So they gave up a successful play to opponents on 50% of their defensive snaps. That is horrific. Obviously, that's a recipe for going 0-8 in conference play in 2021. So Vanderbilt, 
They were not good last year. Now, they do get Kenny Seals to return. It is year two with Clark Lee, so it's not the transition year, but the program he inherited, the shape that it, is, it was in, it's not a one-year rebuild, okay? that's It's not a, a, a job where, okay, one recruiting class, we're back to competing again. No, that's not where they are. They are three or four years away. It's that, if not more, it's that kind of job. So year two, yeah, it's year two. It's not year one of a transition, but I do not expect any sort of significant improvement this year from the Vanderbilt Commodores. That game's also in Athens, so it's not even in Nashville. So, I mean, come on. I mean, Nashville, when we play there, it's a home away from home anyway with the number of Georgia fans that make that trip every other year. But this one's in Athens. This is going to be a blowout. If it's not, then that's not good for us. I will lose my mind. All right, coming to number 10. Again, this was very close between Vanderbilt and the, ten, the team coming in as the 10th most difficult game on the schedule, and that is the Georgia Tech, lowercase g, lowercase t, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. Three wins, guys. Three wins, not just last year, but three wins in each of the last three seasons for the Jackets. I'm not good at math. I can do that, though. I can do that. That's nine wins over the course of the last three seasons for old Geoff Collins. Guys, we had nine wins in nine weeks last year, so that kind of tells you the dichotomy between where these two programs are right now. Uh, in fact, I told you guys that Vanderbilt lost to Georgia and Florida by a combined score of 104-0 to last year. Well, Georgia Tech, man, they really, really, really gave a run for the money. Didn't quite get there, but they lost their last two FBS games to Notre Dame and Georgia by a combined score of 100 to nothing. 100 on the nose. So not quite as bad as Vanderbilt, but bad nonetheless. They were outgained by over a thousand yards last year. They lost 12 players to transfer. So they were terrible last year. They lost 12 of those players to transfer. Now, some people could say, well, that's, you know, that's fine because obviously those guys are terrible. They got to get better, right? Eh, I don't know. They lost 12 players to transfer, lost half of their coaching staff, one of those transfers was Jameer Gibbs, clearly the best player on their entire roster, who a lot of people are looking at as potentially a sleeper Heisman Trophy candidate this year, now going to Alabama to be paired with Bryce Young. So they lose him, their only legitimate, consistent playmaker. They took on 13 transfers to replace all those guys. They only have four returning starters. Oh, and they have a head coach who not only can't spell his name right, but is on the hottest of hot seats. Oh, there's a very good chance. In fact, I would say it's perhaps even likely that he will already be fired by the time that we play the last game of the regular season, or at the very least, it will be a foregone conclusion that he's going to be fired. If you look at their schedule, I think there's, I mean, I see one guaranteed win on the schedule for, for Tech this year. That's Western Carolina. Maybe two, maybe two guarantees if you want to say Duke at home, but I'm not ready to say Duke at home is a guaranteed win. I mean, they'll probably win that game, have a good chance to win that game, but guarantee, I don't know. I think Western Carolina is the only guaranteed win. I think there's I mean, honestly, I think this team can go 2-10 this year. I mean, they three wins last year. Why not 2-10 this year? I mean, they're not going to beat Clemson. They're not going to beat Ole Miss at home. They're not going to win at UCF. They're not going to win at Pitt. Not going to beat Virginia. They're not winning at Florida State. They're not winning at Virginia Tech. Maybe Virginia Tech. I mean, it's at Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech's not going to be great this year. It's a transition for them, but it's on the road at VT. Not going to beat Miami at home. Not going to beat North Carolina on the road. Not going to beat Georgia in Sanford Stadium. Two wins. Two wins in for Georgia Tech. They're going to suck. They've sucked for years. They're going to continue to suck. They're going to have a new coach in 2023. So. It was close, man. It was really, really close. It was a toss-up between them and Vandy coming in at number 11. I'll give it to Tech. I'll give them the edge over Vandy because I guess at least Jeff Sims at quarterback, if he can stay healthy, can kind of make plays. 
can kind of sometimes do that. He's an athletic guy. He can do a couple things, more than what Vandy has, more than Kenny Seals. At least he's shown that. So for that reason, really that reason alone, I'm going to go with Tech over Vandy, but pretty much a toss-up there. Now here is the ultimate insult to Georgia Tech. Because so far, I said Sanford was the least difficult game on the schedule. I think that's pretty clear. Vanderbilt, I gave Tech a slight edge there. So I guess a little bit of respect, but here's where the disrespect is going to come. There's a team that I skipped that's not a Power 5 team that I haven't talked about yet. And I, I didn't skip them by accident. It was entirely intentional. Kent State, I have coming in at number nine as the ninth most difficult game on the schedule. And yes, I'm serious, guys. This is not just a bit. I'm dead serious. I think the Kent State game, I don't think it's going to be necessarily a difficult game, but I think it will have the potential to be a more difficult game than Georgia Tech this season. And I know Kent State's a MAC team. That's a group of five team. Tech's a power five team. What are you talking about, Tyler? Well, let me explain. Kent State, I know this is last year, and that's all we have to work off right now, right? I mean, I'm talking a lot about what these teams are doing last year because that's what we have to work off of. We can project forward based off of what happened last year, but that's really where you start. Last season, Kent State was a pretty good team, guys, at least as far as MAC teams go. They played in the MAC title game. I actually sat and watched that game inside the Hooters in downtown Atlanta before the SEC championship game. They played Northern Illinois, and I had money on Northern Illinois, so I was glad Northern Illinois won that football game. But Kent State was a solid team. They were a good team last year. They made it to their conference championship game. They do lose their starting quarterback from that, that team last year. That was a good Kent State program, a good Kent State team. Dustin Crum, he's gone, but this is a team that was very run-centric last year. And, and Dustin Crum was a big part of that. He was a mobile quarterback. He was a dual-threat guy for them. But they do return their top two rushers from last season who combined for over 2,000 yards, including Marquez Cooper, who was a 1,200, not 12,000, 1,200-yard guy himself last year so they have some dudes that can run the football they also return a 1200 yard receiver in Dante Cephas so they have some firepower returning offensively in fact they have far more firepower returning offensively than either Tech or Vanderbilt in fact I would say they have more firepower offensively returning from last year than Tech and Vanderbilt combined the problem for Kent State and this will be a clear problem for them when they come into Sanford Stadium in September is they had to outscore everyone. That's how they won football games. Their defense was abysmal. They were 124th nationally in total defense, gave up 471 yards a game, gave up 6.2 yards per play. Oh my God, that's bad. They allowed teams to score 36 points per game. They gave up 514 yards a game against Power 5 opponents. And the reason I bring that up is because we are a Power 5 opponent. They are a group of five teams. They do play a pretty tough schedule. In fact, their schedule this year is brutal. If you look at who they play before they play us in late September, they play at Washington to open the season. They then turn around and play at Oklahoma the next week. They get LIU. Week three, so there's a little bit of a breather, then at Georgia. So at Washington, at Oklahoma, at Georgia, three of your first four games out of the gate. They are challenging themselves. I'll at least give them that. Well, they're getting money. That's what they're doing. They're not really trying to, to win those games. I guess they'll try, but that's not necessarily the realistic goal. They're trying to get some money for their program. But last year, they gave up 514 yards a game to Power 5 opponents. And here's the thing. The Power 5 opponents they played were not really offensive powerhouses. They played Texas A&M. They played Iowa. They played Maryland out of the Power 5 conferences last year. 
None of those three offenses were inside the top 40. In fact, Iowa is one of the worst offenses I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Absolutely flat out terrible. Maryland was good at times, very up and down. They had some injuries. A&M, I mean, they were fine, I guess. They were okay. But none of those teams had the kind of firepower that we're going to have offensively this season. And look, I know that's a new year, so maybe they're going to improve a little bit. I wouldn't count on much of an improvement there. So I think we will be able to score at will. Don't be shocked if they were able to move the ball a little bit on a, a young, still a young Georgia defense at that time. We will have a couple of, of, of tough games under our belt with Oregon and South Carolina, who we'll get to a little bit later, but still a young a young defense. And, and this is a high-powered offense. They'll be able to move the ball a little bit, score some points a little bit, but they have no chance whatsoever to stop us. But I do think they will give us more of a challenge because of the offensive firepower than either Tech or the Vanderbilt Commodores. Okay, let's move along here. Number eight, let's get back into SEC play here. The eighth most difficult game on our 2022 schedule, I've got as the trip to Columbia, Missouri, my favorite road trip of all the road trips that we make every other year. Love this trip. Absolutely love it. Can't wait to get back there. The Missouri Tigers. My question for Missouri, I actually have quite a few questions for Missouri. My biggest question for Missouri when it comes to the 2022 season is this, who are the difference makers really on either side of the ball but especially offensively who are your difference makers who do you have that gives you a shot on any given saturday to beat a team the caliber of the georgia bulldogs who do you have is it luther burden the true freshman wide receiver former five-star guy is he going to be that guy that's a lot to ask that's a lot to put on a true freshman that doesn't really have a lot of talent around him that's tough but i mean really other than that who is the guy We know if you watched Missouri last year, Tyler Beatty, their running back, was that guy for them last year. He at least gave him a puncher's chance because he was that dude. He was the entire offense last year. He accounted for almost 40% of all of their yards from scrimmage last season. He was that much of a workhorse for him. The usage rate was off the chart with Beatty. But Beatty's gone, guys. He graduated. He's on to the NFL. Who's the quarterback? They, they took a shot at JT Daniels. In fact, I was watching that closely. I did not want Missouri to get JT Daniels. Even if they would have gotten JT, look, I know the talent level, the talent gap, they're, it, it's, it's vast between Georgia and Missouri. I understand that. I'm not saying if they would have gotten JT, that means they're like, man, oh my God, they're really going to challenge Georgia. But it would have made that game more difficult, right? Because not only is JT a better quarterback than anyone that they have on their roster right now, but he also has a very deep understanding of what we do offensively and defensively. You know they would tap into that. And and that's, you know, that doesn't mean that Missouri would beat us, but it doesn't help, right? But the quarterback is not going to be JT Daniels. We know that he went to Morgantown, West Virginia. It's going to be either either Brady Cook or Tyler Macon. Both those guys played against us last year and they were fine. Tyler Macon's, they're both mobile quarterbacks to a degree. Macon's more mobile than Cook. That's more of his game. Cook's the better passer of the two. If I had to pick one, I would say it's probably going to be Brady Cook. I do think he gives them more of like a true dual threat where he can run the ball some and also do a little bit with his arm. But he has absolutely to this point, and he's, he's played a fair amount with some injuries that they had to Connor Bazelak last year. He has yet to show that he is anything remotely special, that he's anything more than just average as grits, if even that. So I don't see a playmaker there. Their defense, as you all know, last year, we talked about this on this show, because we played Missouri, was disastrous last season. In fact, their run game was maybe the, or their run defense was perhaps the worst rush defense I've seen in the SEC in my life. They gave up 227 yards per game on the ground. They got a little bit better as the season wore on. In fact, there was a time there where they were pushing almost 300 yards a game that they were giving up on the ground. 
I mean, they gave it 5.32 yards per rush. 5.32, guys. That means every time an opposing offense ran the football, on average, they were getting more than half the yards they needed to get a first down. So you run the ball two times, you get a first down against Missouri defense last year. That's how bad they were. Give you a little comparison. We gave up 2.56 yards per rush last year. So they were more than twice as bad against the run. We were awesome against the run. They were terrible. Now they were slightly better than Vanderbilt last year defensively, which obviously not saying much. They only gave up 33.8 points per game last year as opposed to Vanderbilt giving up 35.6 points per game. So defensively, they were terrible, but here's the kicker. They were so bad last year, but this year they're losing their top three defensive tackles from last year, losing their top two cornerbacks. They're on their third defensive coordinator in three years. Eli Dreamwitz has been their coach. He's going into his third year as their head coach. This will be his third different defensive coordinator in three years. He's running through these guys, can't figure that side of the ball out. Drinkwitz is a good offensive mind. I have a lot of respect for him when what he does offensively. He doesn't have the players right now, but you know, he's a guy I think he's got a pretty dynamic personality that can recruit over time to that side of the ball. It's just going to take a little while, but defensively, they can't figure it out. They simply cannot figure it out. This trip is on the road, and it's one of our, I guess, our longest road trip. I know for at least for me, it's our longest road trip. But even though this game is on the road, it's in Columbia, Missouri, a fantastic college town there's no way we should lose this football game. I'm not saying you can't lose this game. You never say never in college football. That's one thing I've learned. Never say never. But extraordinarily unlikely that we lose this football game because the way I, I see this, guys, honestly, looking at the numbers here, watching Missouri play last year, breaking down their tapes, anything with Vanderbilt, I think Missouri is right now coming to this season, I, I think they're closer to Vanderbilt than they are to a team like Tennessee in terms of talent right now. That will change. They'll continue, as long as Drinkwitz gets to keep his job, they don't move on from him. I think they'll continue to build that roster. I don't think they'll ever be an SEC title contender or anything like that, but they'll get closer to what Tennessee is now than, than Vanderbilt. But right now, when you look at that roster, I really do. I think they're closer to Vanderbilt than they are to a team like Tennessee or a team like Kentucky. That's just where they are right now. I just don't see the difference makers. So I got them coming in at number eight as the eighth most difficult game. And we will get to the rest of the list right after this quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, let's get back to this list ranking 
the games on our 2022 football schedule from least to most difficult. We've made it through the first couple games. So coming in at number 12 to recap, the Sanford Bulldogs, number 11, the Vanderbilt Commodores, number 10, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, number nine, the Kent State Golden Flashes, number eight, the Missouri Tigers. So let's pick it up at number seven here. Coming in number seven, the seventh most difficult game on our 2022 schedule is the Auburn Tigers in my humble estimation. Now, I will admit about Auburn, I've gone kind of back and forth on them this offseason. And when I say I've gone back and forth, what I'm saying is I've gone back and forth between like four and eight and seven and five for this Auburn team. It's really tough to see more than seven wins. I don't see fewer than four wins. I think it's somewhere between those two numbers. Maybe in a utopian world, they can get to eight wins, but that would take quite an effort and a lot of balances going their way. I think this is somewhere between four and eight, seven and five. I think six and six, seven and five is probably most likely. So when I say I've gone back and forth on them, I don't mean back and forth between, I don't know, six and six and 10 and two. No, I'm talking four and eight, seven, five, somewhere between there. I will at least give Auburn this. And this is why they're kind of like right in the middle of our list here. They have a legit dude at running back. Tank Bigsby's the real deal. I told you guys years ago, I wish we would have taken Tank Bigsby with the whole Zach Evans drama. Tank was in the back. We could have had Tank Bigsby. He might not have been quite as talented as Zach Evans, but there was not that much of a gap. And with Zach Evans, you knew the baggage. We took the risk. We took Zach Evans and the rest is history. We know what happened. Evans went to TCU, then transferred out. Now he's at Ole Miss and Tank Bigsby is withering away there on the plains. Sucks. Poor decision. That, you know, we don't make many poor decisions when it comes to recruiting. I believe that was one of them. But he's the real deal. We thought he was in a transfer. I thought we had a chance to maybe get him as a transfer. But he stuck with him. And I guess you got to give the guy credit for some loyalty there. Or maybe it wasn't so much loyalty. Money talks these days. Maybe it was an NIL deal. I don't know. But he stuck with him. You don't really see that that often with players that talented playing for programs that are kind of falling off the face of the earth like Auburn has with Brian Harson, But he's still there. So he's great. But what else do they have? Like, really, what else do they have to be excited about offensively? They got a three-man race at quarterback, but it isn't the kind of race that you had maybe at Ohio State coming to last year where you had C.J. Stroud, Quinn Ewers, Jack Miller, four and five stars up and down the quarterback room. It's going to be one of these highly rated guys. That's not really the situation that they're in. It's T.J. Finley, who was terrible down the stretch for Auburn last year. Zach Calzada, who was a, I mean, he. let's be real. Calzada has some physical ability. I will give him that. Like, I watched Andon play a lot last year, and I'm sitting there watching this guy play. I'm like, why aren't you better? Why are you not better than you are? You look the part. You're tall, have a super strong arm, you have a cannon on your arm, you can run the football, you're athletic. How are you so bad? Why are you only completing 56% of your passes? Why are you only throwing for 6.7 yards per attempt? And the answer was, because the guy was a deer in the headlights all of last year. You watched him play. Look at those eyes. Go back and watch him play. The guy's eyes, it's like he was cracked out. His eyes were 40 feet wide every single time he was out there. That guy was scared to death to be on the field. And he put together enough of a game against Alabama for them to win that game. You got to give him credit. But a had a roster last year that was probably like a 10 or 11 win type roster. But they went 8-4. and four because of him, really. It was because of him. And he wasn't supposed to be the guy. He was the backup coming in this season. And he did kind of save the day 
barely against Colorado and almost didn't save the day, but the last second saved the day early in the season when Haynes King, who was their original starter, went down. But man, he was just not good. He was not good. You saw the physical tools, but the production was really subpar. And he's one of the guys fighting for that job. He did not play in the spring. He was injured. So he's kind of behind there from uh, getting to learn that system standpoint. Then you have Robbie Ashford, who's an, an Alabama kid originally. We, we recruited him a little bit, but he went to Oregon. He's transferred from Oregon back home. So that's the three-man race. TJ Finley, Zach Calzada, Robbie Ashford, all three transfers who could not win the job at their previous school. So no, it's not CJ Stroud, Quinn Ewers, Jack Miller. It's not that. They also lose their best receiver from last year, Kobe Hudson, who I saw some really good things from last year. I thought he was a, a kind of an underrated player in the SEC. I think he was on the verge of breaking out this season in the SEC. If he had a quarterback, they'd actually get him the football. He was the victim of having Bo Nix as his quarterback. That's the reality. He transferred out, and he's now at UCF. Went from Auburn to UCF. How often do you see that? guy? And it's not that he wasn't getting playing time. He was their leading receiver, and he transfers out from Auburn and goes to join old Gus Malzahn, the Gus bus, in the tropical suburbs of Orlando, Florida, with beaches nowhere in sight. So that's how bad he wanted to get out of that situation. So I just don't know. I don't know where the playmakers are and the help is for Tank Bigsby. Their offensive line is interesting. They have four starters returning. It's a veteran group, but they just haven't been good. The Auburn offensive line has been pretty bad, like bad to average for three or four years now. And so they have guys coming back, and you would think that they should make some progression this year, but there's no guarantee. They weren't good last year. I'm sure looking a little bit better this year, but how much are we talking about? What's the ceiling with that offensive line? I don't know if it's all that high. The defense is fine. I think the defense will be ahead of the offense, at least early on. Derek Hall is coming back. Nine sacks last year as a pass rusher. Owen Papo, who was hurt for large parts of last year, is back at inside linebacker. He's a very athletic guy who's never quite lived up to that five-star hype coming out of Grayson High School here in Georgia. And you remember, guys, it was N'Kobe Dean and Owen Papo. Like those are the two guys that we were really targeting at inside linebacker that year. And when Papo went to Auburn, everyone was, you know, having a great time at our expense. Auburn fans were pointing and laughing and saying, ha ha, Georgia sucks. We got Papo. You can't recruit. And then all, you know, us, we had to sell for that poor N'Kobe Dean. The other five star who's a valedictorian of his high school in Mississippi comes to Georgia and becomes the leader of one of the greatest defenses in college football history. So yeah, I guess last laugh is ours, Auburn, maybe, possibly, I don't know. But Papo's still an athletic guy. Hasn't lived up to the hype, but he's still a good player. But they lose a lot on that defense too. They lose Roger McCreary, probably the best player in the defense last year. Jacoby McLean, who was outperformed Owen Papo at inside linebacker every year he was there. He was always a better player, although Papo got all the publicity. McLean was clearly the better player. Smoke Monday, who was a good player, was a leader in that defense. I think he got kicked out of, I want to say, 12 games in his career for targeting. I mean, no, not quite 12 games, but it seemed like every time I turned on the TV, he was getting tossed out for targeting, including when we played them last year in Jordan-Hare. So losing a lot of players. In fact, I would say they're losing their best players off that defense last year. Do have some some guys coming back, but they'll be fine. They're not going to be elite. They'll be pretty good, probably at best. And then you got to think about the vibes here. I do think this matters. I think culture matters. I think vibes matter because adversity is going to hit for Auburn. Auburn is not a national championship contender. They're going to lose some games. And when the vibes are as bad as they have been, around Auburn since the end of last season, particularly with respect to the coaching staff, Brian Harson himself, when that adversity hits, it's very likely that the, they're going to spiral. That's the way I see it. I mean, half the fan base, at least half the Auburn fan base, 
has already turned on Brian Harson. They tried, they attempted a coup. I mean, I know it wasn't the fan base necessarily who did that. It was the boosters behind the scenes, like some of the boosters, some of the power players. But the, half the fans, at least, were on board with that, too. They wanted him gone. They were done after last year. They have changes at both coordinator positions, defense and offense. Bobo's gone. Derek Mason left. And we know the story behind the scenes there. They didn't want to work for Brian Harson. Brian Harson's doesn't seem to be the kind of guy that people like to work for or play for, to be quite honest, at this point. So the vibes there, I think that's a problem for them. I think by the time that we play them, I know we play them earlier in the season now, but they'll have already played Penn State. They'll have already played LSU. Can we say likely two losses there? I mean, I actually think they could beat Penn State at home. I'm not completely sold on Penn State. LSU, we don't really know what to expect LSU. We know they have a lot of talent. We know that Brian Kelly has a great track record, but it's an entirely new team. An entire, and it really, it's just Brian Kelly getting used to the SEC. It's it's very, very new. So I don't know what to expect there. They do, they do get LSU at home, but there's a good chance they could lose both those games. And they come into Sanford Stadium with two losses. And then if we blow them out again in Athens, then, I mean, what are those vibes going to be like? They're going to spiral out of control. So, you got to look at that. The game's in Athens. Obviously, the, they can't even beat us in, in Auburn now. They're not They're not going to win here in Athens. The talent advantage is massive in this game. We are just simply far more talented. We have far better players. It's that simple. I mean, really, it's that simple. And college games, more often than not, come down to who has the better roster. And it's clearly the Georgia Bulldogs in this game. Auburn has, uh, over the last four cycles... They have the 15th ranked recruiting class on average over those last four cycles. First Georgia, who on average has finished second in the recruiting rankings over the last four years. So yeah, it's going to take a Herculean effort. It's going to take a ton of mistakes. It's going to take the worst game that we could possibly play for Auburn to win that game. So I've got Auburn coming in at number seven. They're definitely better than Missouri. They're better than Tech. They're better than Vanderbilt. But I'm not really high on this Auburn team. I think four and eight, seven, five, somewhere between there. That's what you're going to see from the Auburn Tigers this year. And I think that we're going to put it to them here in Athens once again this season. Up next, coming in as the sixth most difficult game on the schedule right here, dead center in the schedule, is the Florida Gators. Billy Napier himself taking over. Speaking of talent gap, that is the true ultimate Dan Mullen legacy. Again, like I just said with Auburn, over the last four cycles, we have finished, on average, with the second-ranked recruiting class. Florida, a little bit better than Auburn. That's why I have this game as a little bit more difficult, because I do think they have a better roster than Auburn right now. But they have finished, on average, over the last four cycles, with the 12th-ranked recruiting class. And that's a huge gap, guys. Number two versus number 12. I know it might not seem like it's that big of a gap, but it is when it comes to recruiting players. And on top of that, on top of having a clear talent disadvantage coming into this matchup, they have an entirely new coaching staff. And maybe that's a good thing when you don't have weird, strange, awkward Dan Mullen roaming the sidelines, making weird proclamations on the sidelines, just being generally cringy. But it's a new coaching staff that's going to have to go through a transition. Every coaching staff has to do that. We saw that with Kirby Smart and our staff back in 2016, went 7-5 in year one the regular season, 8-5 and five overall. It takes time to establish your culture and to make that transition. It really does. And I think Florida's going to experience that to a degree this year as well. And here's the thing with, with this new coaching staff, with Billy Napier. It's very strange. The Florida fan base, man, very sensitive, very fickle. But they were over the moon when they hired Billy Napier. And I get it because it just, it wasn't Dan Mullen. And he comes in with this reputation as the guy who's going to change the recruiting game for them. He's a Saban disciple, just like Kirby. He used to work at Alabama, has Southern ties. Dad was a coach, whole nine yards, right? He was their version of Kirby. 
Well, the early returns have not exactly been so positive for the Florida Gators because they are seemingly missing out on every major recruit that they think they are in the running for here this summer over the past couple of weeks has been bad. And it's to the point that Billy Napier had to write an open letter to the Florida fan base. He hasn't even coached a game because they're collectively freaking out and they're already basically giving up on this guy before he's ever even coached a single football game. That's not good. So when they're already doing that right now, and he hasn't coached a single game, what's going to happen when they lose to Utah at home week one? Because I'm telling you guys, I've already put money on that game. I've got Utah over Florida week one. In the swamp, I don't care. Utah is better than Florida. Just, they are. They're just better. What happens when they lose that game to a Pac-12 team? Because, you know, we know how Southerners feel about the Pac-12, right? What happens when they lose to Kentucky at home? What happens when they lose at Tennessee to a team they never lose to? What happens when they lose to LSU at home? I mean, I'm not saying they lose every one of those games before they play us, but I think it's very feasible that they are four and three, if not three and four, entering the cocktail party. I truly believe that. And if they've already quit on, and so the fan base has basically given up on him already without him coaching a game, what's going to happen when he loses those games? I mean, really, what's going to happen? They think they own Tennessee. They have owned Tennessee. They're Florida. They're an SEC team. They shouldn't lose to a Pac-12 team, right? Kentucky, they've owned Tennessee. They've owned Kentucky. I know Kentucky beat them a couple years ago, but they've owned Kentucky. But I don't know, man. I don't know if this year they're going to. So I don't know what the fan base is going to do. I don't know how they're going to react to that. And that's the fan base. What about the players? I know it's year one, and I think he has some runway there, but... We've seen this group of players quit on a coach when adversity strikes. You saw the end of last year after Dan Mullen got fired before he got, actually even before he got fired, after the Georgia game, after they played us, you saw how they quit. And that's ultimately what got him fired. They just, it was, it was abysmal. It was a flat out joke. And I know that they don't have the tracker record with Napier and Napier is certainly not the cringy guy that Dan Mullen was. So maybe he won't rub the players the wrong way. And maybe they already won't dislike him from a personal standpoint as it is, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we've seen these players, this group of guys quit on a coach before, and if it starts out slow for them like that, I'm just saying, just put it out there. But let's talk about this offense and this defense. We know the offense was the calling card under Dan Mullen. We know that. But here's the thing. like They were pretty good offensively, especially in 2020. They were great. They were elite in 2020 on offense. Last year, they were better than they were on defense, but they're losing 40 of the 53 touchdowns that were accounted for last season. That's a lot, guys. That's a lot of production that's gone out the window. At receiver, they're going to rely on Justin Shorter and Xavier Henderson, two guys that have been nothing but pieces. They've just been accessories their entire career. They're all of a sudden going to step up and be the guy? I don't know, man. I mean, maybe. Crazy things happen, but odds would say if they haven't done it yet, probably not going to do it this year. Just haven't seen it from them. I will say that Anthony Richardson is a great fit for what Napier did offensively at Louisiana. He had a guy named Levi Lewis who's a dual threat quarterback and he really featured a, a run game, a quarterback driven run game. And I think Richardson's a really good fit for that. But Richardson was a great fit for Dan Mullen's traditional offense too. And it didn't exactly work out that way last year. But I will, Richardson's going to have to be elite. Like if they're going to be pretty good this year, and the, if the Florida fans are going to feel good about this season when it's all said and done, I think Richardson's going to have to be elite, especially to challenge us. I think he's going to have to be that guy they all dream that he's going to be because outside of him, I just don't think they have the dudes on offense. I think Nyquan Wright is 
He's a pretty good running back, but they just don't have the guys up and down the roster on that side of the ball to really challenge us unless Richardson is just that kind of difference maker. And you saw, I guess, flashes at times, individual plays here and there last year, but nothing on any sort of consistent level. So I need to see that before I believe it on Anthony Richardson. Defensively, they were horrific last year. That's where things really fell apart. They had a 41% success rate against them. That's Rutgers level bad. I went back and, and tried to find a comparison for it to give you an idea of just how bad they were. Like if you don't have a frame of reference for what 41% success rate is, that's Rutgers level bad. Okay, that's how bad they were on defense last year. Now I am giving Florida more credit than Auburn. All right, that's why I have this as a slightly more difficult game than Auburn. Even though it's year one and not year two of a new staff like it is at Auburn, I'm giving Florida a little bit more credit. The reason I had them ranked ahead of Auburn here on our schedule, number one, it's not at home. It's a neutral site. It's not in Gainesville, but it's a neutral site. So it's not within our friendly confines here in the Sanford Stadium. I also believe they do have more upside at quarterback with Anthony, Anthony Richardson, like I mentioned. He did average 8.1 yards per play last year. So he's got potential. They just got to get it out of him. And we just don't know. I don't know what to expect there this year. But the upside, I think, is better than what anything that Auburn has at quarterback coming into 2022. And I just think, again, they're slightly more talented overall than Auburn. I don't think it's a massive talent gap between Florida and Auburn. I think they're pretty similar with their talent. But Florida, I would give a slight edge over Auburn right now. And the recruiting rankings over the last four years would also suggest that as well. So we got Florida coming in at number six as the sixth most difficult game on our 2022 schedule. And that takes us into our top five. Coming in at number five are the South Carolina Gamecocks. This one is really interesting for me. I know this is weird. Like, I, I feel weird having them as a more difficult game than Auburn and Florida. I know that sounds weird because traditionally Auburn and Florida are much better programs than South Carolina. They're just better teams. But there's a couple reasons why this season I have the South Carolina game as more difficult than either the Florida or the Auburn games. Number one, it's in Columbia, South Carolina. That stadium on September 17th will be the personification of hell on earth. It is going to be hotter than the surface of the sun. It always is. It is there's no there's no shade, there's nothing. If you've never been to that stadium, it's in the middle of a fairgrounds. It's like two miles away from their downtown, from their campus. It's truly in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing around it. Usually I walk down there and by the time I get there, I've lost about 25 pounds in water weight and I am in desperate need of a change of clothes. This year, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to Uber down there, or there's a shuttle. Maybe I'll take that. I'll be the lazy old man this time, but it's going to be crazy hot, guys. It's just, and it is. It's like hell on earth. It's just like you're roasting in hell there. That's what's happening, but I'll give it to them. It is a, when I, when we play there, when I'm in that state, I don't go to the South Carolina games unless we're playing there. When we are there playing South Carolina, it is an extremely rowdy, tough environment. It really, especially when they think they have a chance. And this year, you've heard them all offseason. They've got some transfers. you got Spencer Rattler coming in from Oklahoma. They think they have a chance. They think they have a chance to beat us to pull the upset just like they did in 2018. Now, we know how that game ended, obviously. We blew them out and we shut them up real quickly. But this is the different year. It's a different Georgia team. It's a different South Carolina team. Different year, obviously. But it's going to be a crazy tough environment. I'm actually very excited. It's a noon game and not a night game. I was concerned this was going to be a night game because night games in Columbia, I think I've actually only been to one true night game when we played, what was that, 2012, when we got 
Oh my god, we just got we got blacked out, man. Like they just they killed us in that game. That was terrible. Jadavion Clowney was still there. We had some terrible turnovers. Just bad memories, man. Don't even want to relive that. Bad memories. Usually it's a three thirty game most of the time, but this year it's a noon game. I think that's big for us because we know noon crowds, noon home crowds are typically not as rowdy and raucous and liquored up as a night environment is. That's just fact. That's just the reality of the situation. They're still going to be fired up for this game. It's still going to be a tough environment. They're going to have Sandstorm playing. Oh my God. They're going to be swinging their little towels in everyone's face. That's what they're going to do. But I'd rather be at noon. It'll be hotter, but I'll take that trade off because I care about our success in the field more than I do my own personal safety. Let's just put it like that. So I'm glad it's at noon, but still the defending national champion who just happens to be their top rival in the SEC is going to be coming to town. They think they're taking the next step with Shane Beamer. They're all in on this guy. They got Spencer Rattler. That place will be rocking. So that is a big reason why I have this game as more difficult than Auburn and Florida because neither one of those games are on the road. And not only is this game on the road, it's in a very tough environment against a team that hates us and really, really, really wants to beat us. Okay, so that's number one. Reason number two why I think it's more difficult than Auburn and Florida is it's early in the season. It's all about when we play them. And this is why South Carolina, like we, there was a stretch there under Spurrier where we had trouble with South Carolina, right? And my explanation for that, they were a good team. They were better than they had been at any point in the history of their program. But I think a big part of that was also when we played South Carolina. It's always early in the year. They were always healthy. We didn't really have as much tape to work off of. Their fans had not stopped showing up to games because they were out of the running, which is what happens like when Florida usually plays them. No one's in the game, even though it's kind of a rival-ish. But South Carolina, most years, out of the running. They're not, they're, they're not having a good season because that's who South Carolina is, traditionally, right? But that's never the case for us. We're their top rival in the SEC. It's early in the year. So when we play them in Columbia, more often than not, that place is hopping. It's rocking. And uh, that's going to be a problem for us. And I'll also say this, added to those reasons for being early in the season, making it difficult, we're also still going to be working in some very young, inexperienced pieces on defense. This is going to be the first hostile environment for a lot of those guys. That's not as much of a factor for defensive players because the opposing crowd, like the home crowd, is usually not as loud when their offense is on the field. So there's that, but it's still going to be a, the first hostile environment for a lot of those guys on defense. going to be working in some guys that haven't played a lot. You're going to have to learn, and I hope that their learning curve doesn't cost us a game that we have no business losing. And then I also think that South Carolina, and this is not something that you normally say, but I think this year they do have more pieces, at least on offense, than either Auburn or Florida do. Spencer Rattler, I got, he's not the guy that everyone thought he was. He's never performed to a five-star level. No, he lost his job to Caleb Williams last year. But he's pretty clearly an upgrade over anyone that they had at that position last year, whether it was Zeb Nolan. Let's not forget Zeb Nolan, guys who was holding a clipboard to start the season as a, a support staff or graduate assistant guy. And then they had so many injuries at quarterbacks, particularly to Luke Doty, they had to ask him to put some pads back on and get out there and play again because he had his COVID year, right? He did. And he played fine, I guess. All, I mean, all things considered, but I mean, come on, guys. He was a guy that had no intentions of playing last year. Luke Doty got hurt again. Jason Brown was a guy that they had to play some late in the year. He's already transferred out, but... Spencer Rattler will be better than anyone they had last year. I'm not saying he's going to be elite because I don't believe that he will, but he will be an improvement over their options that they had at quarterback last year. And this was one of the least explosive teams in the SEC last year. It really was. I mean, 
terrible when it came to explosives. They just were not hitting big plays. But I think that should probably change this year. I'm not going to say they're going to be one of the most explosive teams, but they'll be more explosive with a guy like Spencer Rattler than they were last year because he's a more competent player at quarterback. And they also have a guy named Jaheim Bell at tight end. He is a dude at that position. Now, South Carolina fans want you to think that he's better than Brock Bowers. He is not. He is not Brock Bowers, but he's an NFL tight end. He is very, very good. I'm not going to disrespect the guy. He's a very good player. I don't think he's as good as Bowers, but he's still a very, very good player. He's going to be an NFL tight end for sure. feel confident saying that. And then Josh Van out wide. I'm not going to say Josh Van is an elite receiver, but I think he's a really solid number one guy for them out wide. So they have some pieces. On defense... They have four and five star guys all over their defensive line. Zach Pickens, Jordan Birch, remember that name? Rick Sandage, remember that name? Those guys went to South Carolina. Will Muschamp, say what you want about him as a head coach. That guy could recruit, especially on defense, especially on that defensive line. He packed that defensive line up. They still have a couple of those guys left over that they're benefiting from. So they have some guys up front. And for us as a team who really likes to establish the run game, that might not be a particularly awesome matchup. But still, the reason they're not higher than number five is there's a talent gap. Okay, go back to recruiting rankings. They have, this is crazy to me. Over the last four cycles, South Carolina has finished on average with the 46th ranked recruiting class. And I, I'm serious, guys. I went back and triple checked those numbers. I was like, this can't be right. I'm doing some math wrong. And no, it's 46. That's how bad the recruiting has been over the last four years. Now, the transfer portal will allow you to mitigate that to a degree in this day and age. So they have gone to the portal. They haven't recruited particularly well. They've gone to the portal and they brought in some guys like Spencer Rattler. Okay. So they, they have been able And Jordan Strachan from Georgia state a couple years ago was the top pass rusher for Georgia state. He was a, I mean, very, very, very good pass rusher for them. He's still on the team. So they've gotten some guys from the transfer portal, but from the high school ranks, it's been bad. So there's a clear talent edge for us in this game. They do have some pieces as I laid out, but they don't have the overall talent level or depth, I think, to really beat us in this game. They can maybe push us for a half or so, but I don't think they can pull the whole thing off. So I, And I can't have them higher than that because I just don't think, they, again, they don't have the talent or the depth. That's why they can't be higher than number five. I think they have enough pieces to be in the top five, but can't go any higher than that. All right, coming in at number four in our 2022 schedule rankings are the Oregon Ducks from the Pacific Northwest. And I am working on this Scout in the Enemy episode right now. I will have this completely ready for you guys. I've done all the film watching. I'm just trying to put together the outline. Have that for you guys when I get back from my vacation. That'll be the first one up. We'll start from the top and work our way down the entire schedule. So we'll get into them a lot more here in a week and a half or so. But I'll give you a quick little outlook on Oregon. And here's the thing with Oregon. I really don't know what to think. I don't know what to expect. There's so many unknowns with this team. That could be a good thing. could be a bad thing. I don't know. It's unknown. I really don't know what to think. And there's a couple reasons why I don't know what to think. First off, it's an entirely new staff. Not just offense, not just defense. A new staff entirely is a coaching change there. You got Dan Lanning as a first-time head coach at any level. You have an offensive coordinator in Kenny Dillingham calling plays for the very first time in his career. You have a brand new quarterback, Bo Nix, of all guys, coming over from Auburn, Alabama, all the way to the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of unknowns. I just don't know what to expect. There are some really talented dudes on defense, but you're losing the guy who was the most talented of those guys, and Kayvon Thibodeau was in the NFL draft this past year. But when I look at this game, and I see the point spread, which just continues to rise. There's some outlets, some books out there that have it at 18 and a half points right now. 
I happen to believe that's way too much in this game, especially when it comes to the unknowns. And here are my concerns. My concerns in this game are as follows. Number one, Oregon returns their entire offensive line. They're all veterans. Four of them are seniors. If you look at that matchup, we have a very young and experienced front seven outside of Jalen Carter. That is not a, an ideal matchup when they their strength on offense might be their offensive line. I'm not saying our defense line is going to be a weakness. I don't believe that at all. We've recruited extraordinarily well at that position. I'm very high on all those players. But it's the first game of the season. A lot of these guys, it's going to be their first like true, some of them their first meaningful playing time. A guy like Tyrion Ingram Dawkins and Zion Logue, who played more for us last year than people realized, but he's going to take on a new role. It's his first game in that new role. Same thing for a guy like Warren Princeton. These guys are just going to have to do something they haven't really had to do before. And that's interesting for me. That's unknown. I don't know what to expect there. Oregon's also very strong in the front seven defensively. Very strong. They had two former five-star inside linebackers with Noah Sewell and Justin Flo. I wanted Noah Sewell so incredibly badly. I was enamored with his take coming to high school, and we made it very, very, very close for him. He ended up going to Oregon to join his brother, Penny Sewell, who's now in the NFL's left tackle. That guy is big, huge, and can run. If you look at the guy just standing out there, you're like, there's no way that guy can run that well. He does. He moves extraordinarily well. Justin Flo was hurt most of last year, but he's another former five-star guy, really, really athletic, talented guy as well, inside linebacker. Popo Amave and Brandon Dorius are two good veterans up front on that defensive line. And that, that's interesting. Their front seven, it's a matchup thing. It's, again, what do we like to do? We like to run the football offensively, establish a run, work play action off of that. Their, strong, their strongest point in their defense is their front seven. Are we going to have the kind of success running the football that we want to have, that we need to have to be able to establish the run game, get the play action game working a whole nine yards? I, I, I still lean towards yes enough, but I don't know if it's like 18 and a half points worth, man. I just don't know. But again, my biggest concern is the unknown here. This team is going to be really difficult to prepare for. I guess we have an idea about their offense. You can look at where Kenny Dillingham has been as OC before and what his influences are. But again, he's never called plays himself. So you don't really know what his tendencies are, what he likes to do in downs and distances situations. You just don't know. It's tough to prepare for. We know Dan Lanning. We know that guy in and out. But what we don't know is how he plans to use the personnel they have on hand this year. And the flip side is also true. We know Lanning, but he knows our program. He knows our coaches. He knows our personnel intimately. And that might not be a decisive factor. It's not the first time that a coach, that a team has matched up against a, a former coach. It's not the first time, obviously. So it might not be a decisive factor, but it's certainly enough to at least unsettle me. It's, again, it's just the unknown. It's unsettling for me. I'll, I'll leave it at that. So to wrap Oregon up here, I think it's a talented team. Mario Cristobal recruited very well. There's a reason Miami wanted him. They're not as talented as we are and really not especially close, but they're still a talented team. But at the end of the day, the reason they're not inside the top three, what keeps them out of the top three is that this game is in Atlanta. It's going to be a de facto home game for us. There's a lot of turnover for Oregon, and that could work in their favor because we don't know what to expect, but it also could work in our favor because they don't know how to use those pieces. They haven't figured that stuff out yet. Maybe they don't have the cohesiveness, all those things. The coaching staff's all brand new. How are they going to function together? It's all brand new for them. So I, because of that and the fact that it is in Atlanta, I have them high, number four, but that keeps them out of the top three. And when we get back from this last break, we will break into the top three most difficult games on the Georgia 2022 football schedule. 
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, we're back. Let's dive into the top three here on the 2022 football schedule. Coming in at number three, and I will admit, guys, I kind of went back and forth with how I was going to rank these top three. So I I have a ranking for you. I want to give you a ranking, but I'm not saying that I'm necessarily stuck to this ranking. This is what I settled on right now. Coming in number three as the third most difficult game on Georgia's 2022 football schedule is the Tennessee Volunteers. Now, don't mistake this ranking as me saying I expect Tennessee to be a top 10 team or anything like that. But as far as our schedule goes, I think Tennessee absolutely is one of the best teams on our schedule this year. In fact, I think you can make the argument for them being the best team on our schedule, which is why in the early iterations of this ranking, I had them higher. I had them number two, number one at times. But I settled with them at number three, and I'll explain why. But I do think you make an argument for them being the best team that we're going to play this year. I think by the time the season's all said and done, if you look back at all the teams that we played, who had the best record, Tennessee might have the best record of all the teams that we play. But here's why I have the number three and not number two or number one. I think they have the most prolific and proven quarterback in the SEC, not named Bryce Young with Hinton Hooker. I, I think they do. I think it's fair to say there's some good quarterbacks in this league. I think outside of Bryce Young, I might take Hinton Hooker second. I mean, he threw 31 touchdowns to three picks last year, guys. Highly productive. Also a major threat in the run game as well. They have two legit playmakers at wide receiver. Cedric Tillman is a dude. Jalen Hyatt is a really good option as well. Really good number two. They have an offense that does an incredible job of putting defenses in conflict. So offensively, I don't have a ton of questions. My biggest question is, can they sustain the pace that they play at? They, I think, play so fast at some point it gets to a fault because their team, their defense is worn out, their offensive line is worn out, and they get in second halves, and that's when teams that have more talent and more depth can take it to Tennessee. Like like last year when we played them, they, they hung with us there for the first half, but we just wore them out. We had more depth and the talent advantage just took over in the second half. So that's the concern I have about their offense, but talent-wise, they've got some really good players. They still have major questions on defense though, in my opinion. And I think if you look at their defense, I I don't know who their their playmakers are. I like they're not bad on defense, but they're not good either. They, I don't know who the dynamic players are. Who are your difference makers on defense, Tennessee? I don't know who they are. Maybe Byron Young, maybe. I just don't know who those difference makers are. So they'll be fine on defense, just not great. I think that's what could potentially hold this team back. But again, their offense is poised to be very, very dynamic this year. I think if you look at their team in totality, especially on offense, they have more proven playmakers than Auburn or Florida or South Carolina. I think they have more stability than Oregon. They've already gone through year one of their transition. It was a pretty successful transition year one. They have a guy at quarterback at Hendon Hooker who has proven to be, at the very least, 
a very good quarterback, which you certainly cannot say about Bo Nix. He's had his moments, but production-wise, no, he has not been very good. He's been far less than very, very good. But I go back to what I said earlier. I think you can make, yes, you can make an argument for Tennessee as the best team on our schedule, but here's the thing. This game is in Athens. If this game was in Knoxville, it would be number one. Zero questions about it. If this was in Knoxville, a thousand percent, it'd be the most difficult game on our 2022 schedule. And I I would not question that for a second. It'd be a no-brainer for me, number one. But it's in Athens. Tennessee is also a rival of ours. Tennessee also is getting a lot of preseason hype this year based off how they finished last year in year one of Josh Heupel. And if Tennessee is as good as Tennessee fans think they will be this season, there is no way in hell that we overlook this game. I I understand that it falls right after Florida, which I don't love that, but that's just how things are going to work now. I get that. But if they are as good as the Tennessee fans think they will be, and I think they're going to be pretty good. I really do. We're not going to overlook this game. And if we don't overlook this game, we're just better. We're just better than them. It's just that simple. They're good. They're improved, but they're not as good as us. They are not on our level. They just simply are not. Let's not forget, guys. We have lost exactly one game at home since 2016. And that was an overtime game against South Carolina. It took a confluence of events for us to lose that game. And it all happened in one setting and we lost that game. So like, could it happen? Sure, I guess. This, this Tennessee team is better than that South Carolina team. But again, we in the last five seasons, we have lost one home game. Sanford Stadium has legitimately become one of the true great home field advantages in college football. And it, I think Sanford Stadium has always been kind of an underrated home field advantage, but I will admit, I mean, I, I go to a lot of these road games, all these road games really, in the past, I don't think Sanford Stadium was ever really in the top echelon of home environments. That has changed. Something has changed with Kirby Smart coming in over the last five years. Oh, I don't know, maybe because we're good and we're competing for and winning national titles. The in-game atmosphere, the music, that's improved. You got the Spike Squad now. So all those things have improved and it's become a much, and you got the lights now too, obviously. So it has become a legitimate home field advantage for us. And I just... I have a really hard time. Again, nothing's impossible, but I have a really, really hard time seeing Tennessee come into Athens and beat us at home. I just have a really, really hard time seeing that. And that's ultimately why I moved them back to number three. I still respect them. I still think it'll be a difficult game. I don't think it's gonna be a cakewalk by any stretch of the imagination. I have respect for that offense, but I don't have it number two or number one, which I did earlier because of where the game is played. We just don't lose at home anymore. It's just that simple. We'll lose at home again at some point. I hate to say that. That sucks to even think about, but I just don't see it being this one. And that leads us into our top two. Coming in at number two are the Mississippi State Bizarro Dogs. And yes, I know a lot of you are probably shocked right now, sitting there in your car at home, wherever you are, working out, wherever you might be listening to this episode. I know this sounds crazy to a lot of you out there. I'm saying that a team that went seven and six last year is going to be the second most difficult game on Georgia's 2022 football schedule. I know how that sounds on the surface, but this game against Mississippi State in Starkville is trap game extraordinaire. That's what this is. It's sandwiched between Tennessee and at Kentucky late in the season. Now, Mississippi State will probably have around four losses by the time we play them because they do have one of the tougher schedules in the country, obviously playing the SEC West. It's a tough schedule. And hey, it's Mississippi State. 
This is not a traditional power that we are talking about. This is not the kind of program that jumps up and grabs your attention. It doesn't grab the attention of 18, 19, 20-year-old football players that populate our roster. Our team, on the flip side, will have hopefully just come off victories over Florida and Tennessee, two much bigger names, bigger brands, and bigger rivals. And then we have Kentucky at Kentucky the next week, who might be sitting there number two in the East late in the season. What I'm telling you is this. There are so many factors saying, hey, Georgia, overlook this game. That concerns me. Their fans, on top of that, their fans are going to be frothing at the mouth for a chance to beat a defending national champion who never comes to Starkville. Yeah, they get Alabama every other year, but that's old hat. Like they, they, they see Alabama. Georgia never plays there. We just won the national championship. They're going to be able to hear the cowbells on Pluto that night. That crowd is going to be insane. So yes, to me, this is a classic trap game. And I'm very concerned that some of our players, it won't be everybody, but I'm concerned that some of them could potentially overlook this game. I'm concerned that some people in our fan base will overlook this game. And I know the fans don't play. Yeah, I know. I get it. Yes, Tyler, fans don't play. Yeah, I get that, guys. But I I do believe to some degree the way a fan base perceives a game and how seriously they take it in the weeks leading up to that game, I do think that seeps into the minds of the players because the players are college students. They're on campus. They go to class and they get the vibes around the program. They know when it's a big game. They know when the student body, the town here in Athens is excited and when they're kind of overlooking game, that kind of seeps into the mentality. At least it has the ability to seep into their mentality. Now, I will give Kirby Smart and company credit. They, generally speaking, do a fantastic job of not overlooking opponents and, and teaching that we play to a standard because that's that's what happens. That's how you get caught up and bit by trap games is that you play to your opponent. You play up or down based on who the opponent is. That's why you got to play to a standard. That's your, You're not playing to beat your opponent. You're playing to play as well as you can possibly play. And in the process, you hope you beat your opponent. That's the whole idea behind the process that Saban's admitted and Kirby is obviously taken here to great effect here in Athens. So usually we're fine, but as a fan, I can't help but be concerned. I mean, that's that's what I do. I get concerned about these things. And I am concerned that some people might overlook this game. But I would say do so at your own risk because Mississippi State is going to be a good football team. I am very high on how good this team can be. Again, I said earlier that I think they'll probably have four losses by this time. But that doesn't mean they're not going to be a good team. And just that's a reflection of how good I think the SEC West is going to be. There's a lot of parity in that division. But I I think that Mississippi State is a very good football team that you absolutely should be respecting. And I know that's not traditionally what you think of Mississippi State, but this team was actually really good last year. I know their record did not say that at the end of the year. You look at their record, if you didn't actually watch them play and you see they went seven and six, you're like, Tyler, you're an idiot. How can you say this is the second most difficult game on our schedule? This team went seven and six last year. How can you possibly say they lost to Memphis last year? Yeah, I mean, I know. I watch a lot of football, guys. I watch a lot of Mississippi State. I like watching the air because I think it's a fascinating offense. And I'm here to tell you, Mississippi State was far better than 7-6. and six. I've never really believed in that old cliche that you are what your record says you are. And I guess technically, if you're 7-6, and six, you're 7-6. and six. But in college football, not all things are created equal. Not all schedules are created equal. Not all balances of the ball are created equal. So you can be 7-6, and six, but be... Much and actually a much better team than seven and six. 
just by a confluence of events. And I think that was the case for Mississippi State last year. And I got some numbers to back this up, guys. I've I've dove deep into Mississippi State because you know I, I like to lay a, a wager here or there, and I like to do some of these preseason win totals. And I strongly considered laying a, a wager on Mississippi State to go over six and a half wins. I just ultimately did not pull the trigger. At least I have not yet pulled that trigger because it's just a tough division, and they got to play us and Alabama. But again, I think I think they're a good team. They're a capable team that has the ability to upset somebody good. And if you look at last year. Yes, they were seven and six, but in four of their five regular season losses, I'm taking Alabama out of the equation because Alabama is just at a different level than everyone else in the SEC West. They have been for a while. They probably will be moving into the future until A&M gets a couple of recruiting classes until they buy a couple more recruiting classes, but I'm taking Alabama out of the equation. So they lost five regular season games, one of those to Alabama. They had four of their losses. So in those four other losses, so we're talking about LSU, Memphis, which is a game that was stolen from them, some of the absolute worst fishing I've ever seen in my life. That game was 100% stolen from Mississippi State. I don't even like Mississippi State. I'm still aggrieved for them at how atrocious that officiating was in that game. It was just abysmal, terrible. But LSU lost to Memphis, lost to Arkansas, lost to Ole Miss, okay? So in those four losses, they outgained their opponents by 500 total yards, but they lost all four of those games. They outgained each of those opponents. You put them all together, over 500 yards total more yards gained than their opponents in those four losses. But they lost all four games and they lost them by an average of four points. How did that happen? How do you outgain your opponents like that consistently but still lose all four of those games and lose them by such slim margins? Well, you do that by turning the ball over. They were 10 in the SEC in turnover margin. And you also do that by not capitalizing on scoring opportunities. They were horrible in the field goal kicking department last year. They were dead last in the SEC in field goal percentage. They only converted on 56% of their field goal kicks last year. It got so bad, especially after the Arkansas game when they missed, I think, three or four kicks that were within 40 yards to lose that game. It got so bad for them that Mike Leach held open tryouts. He pulled that old stunt where you hold open tryouts for the student body to find somebody that could kick better than the guys they had on roster last year at that position. But here's the thing. Turnovers, that's largely a luck thing. It usually fluctuates from year to year. When it's when it works against you, when your turnover margin is, is low one year, it's usually high the next year. When it's high one year, it's usually low the next year. Very few teams sustain it one way or the other. So they are due to flip their turnover luck in their favor this season. They got rid of both those kickers last year, and they've got a transfer coming in that has been pretty good throughout his career. So they looks like they're going to fix that issue for the most part. And you, like, you would think, based off past history, turnovers should be less of an issue for them this year. Here's another number for you guys. In their total yardage differential, and this is a number I love. You guys listen to the podcast. If you've been with us for a while, you know that I love this number when comparing teams. Total yardage differentials, where you take the total yards that a team gained and the total yards they surrendered, and you subtract the yards they gave up from the yards they gained, and you get their total yards differential. Anything above like 500, like plus 500 yards, that's that's good. You're solid. That's like a seven eight, like a seven eight win team ish. Anywhere between like 500 to a thousand yards. If you're a plus thousand, you should be like to me. You're like a nine plus win type team. If you get in like the plus 1500 plus 2000 yard range then you're a conference champion contender, a playoff contender, that type team. Mississippi State last year, guys, this is probably going to surprise a lot of you. 
they were plus 1,234 yards on the year last year. Let me roll off some teams that was better than last year. That was better than Kentucky. That was better than Ole Miss, who played in the Sugar Bowl. That was better than Arkansas, who played in a New Year's Day Bowl. That was better than Tennessee, who everyone's so excited about this year on a national level. That was better than Texas A&M, who beat Alabama. It was better than Clemson. It was better than Oklahoma. It was better than Baylor, who won the Big 12 last year. It was better than Penn State. It was better than Iowa, who played in the Big 10 championship game last year. And I could go on and on and on. But those are teams that I think coming to this year, everyone perceives as far better than Mississippi State, on a different level than Mississippi State. But if you looked at the production last year, Mississippi State was better. They were more productive. They didn't have the wins because of turnovers and field goal issues, but they were more productive. They outgained their opponents more than all those teams that I just listed. And here's the thing. Not only were they much better than their record said last year, this year, because that's what we care about is this year, they returned 16 starters this year in 2022. 16 starters, including Will Rogers at quarterback in his third year as a starter. Will Rogers is probably going to lead the SEC in passing yards because they throw the ball 9,000 times a game. But the dude can play. He's a winner. He's a gamer. And they have a really good group of wide receivers. It's kind of a no-name group. But they have a good group of dudes that can go out there and make plays. Jaquavius Marks is a really good running back who does a lot for them in the past game as a receiver out of the backfield. He's back. Their entire defensive line is back. They do lose Aaron Brule. He's gone to Michigan State to reunite, or well, not reunite, but he was recruited heavily by Mel Tucker. And when he, Mel was here at Georgia. So he's gone. He was a good linebacker for them. But their entire defensive line returns. Their defense was really good last year. They have... Their coaching staff returning pretty much intact. A lot of continuity there in this team. And this game is all on the road, sandwiched between Tennessee and at Kentucky late in the season. This is 100% a recipe for a classic trap game. Not only is it a trap game, though, this is a good team that even if it wasn't a trap game would be capable at home of giving us a little bit of a game, at least for a half or so. But when you factor in the trap game component of this, I'm, I'm concerned. I'll be honest, I'm concerned. We are clearly better. We're clearly more talented, but that doesn't always matter. More talented teams get upset in college football. And I just really, really hope that does not happen to us late in the season on the road in the land of the cowbell. And that finally brings us to number one on my list, the most difficult game, according to me, on Georgia's 2022 football schedule. You've probably deduced this by now. There's one team left. It's our game very late in the season. Game 11, on the road at Kentucky. Now, I just got through telling you how good I think Mississippi State's going to be this year. I think they're a little bit of a sleeper team. I don't think they're a sleeper in terms of like they're going to contend for an ACC West title because there's a lot of really good teams in that division, but I think they're a more talented team than people give them credit for. I actually think Mississippi State, at the end of the day, might be better than Kentucky. I do. Their record might not say at the end because they play in a tougher division, but they did beat Kentucky by two touchdowns last year. I know it's last year, but I mean, they beat Kentucky by two touchdowns and they have more proven production returning this season. But here's the thing. Here's why. Let me explain why I have Kentucky ahead of Mississippi State. And this was razor thin for me, guys. Honestly, I, I this is interchangeable for me in a lot of ways, but I, I gotta, gotta rank them. I'm going Kentucky number one. And a big part of that is I have the utmost respect for Mark Stoops. I think this guy is a fantastic football coach. It's 
borderline miraculous that they have been able to keep this guy around. I don't understand how. And maybe he's just at home. He loves it there. He wants to build his own thing. That's And that's cool, man. But it's crazy. This guy is a fantastic football coach. And that place, talk about being rocking. Every road environment we play in this year, we're going we're to get the Alabama treatment. We're in the defending national champion. It's going to be a rocking environment. But Kentucky is going to be rocking. Probably going to be a night game. It seems like every time we play them these days, it's at night. And any of you have ever been to a game at Kentucky, especially at night, if it does end up being at night, it's hard to predict now, but if they're as good as I think they could be and we're as good as I think we're going to be, good chance it's a night game. If you've been to a game at Kentucky at night, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very underrated road environment. And they do have some good pieces returning. Will Levis, who is getting all sorts of love as a potential first-round draft pick, which I don't see, at least based off his production last year. I get where they're coming from because everyone's looking for the next Josh Allen in the NFL right now, a guy at quarterback who's big, physical, has a, a good arm, and is mobile. They're looking for that Josh Allen type guy. And Will Levis fits that bill, but his production just hasn't been that in college. He wasn't that guy at Penn State. He wasn't that guy for Kentucky last year. But he's still a talented player. He's better at quarterback than the guys have had in the recent past at, uh, at Kentucky under Mark Stoops. Chris Rodriguez has been one of the best running backs in the country that just no one on the national level talks about over the past couple of years. People in the SEC, especially in the SEC East, know who this guy is. You guys know who he is. But on a national level, he's not a guy that gets a lot of publicity, but he's a really good running back. Now, he's running into some trouble this offseason off the field. He's already, I think, suspended, I want to say, for the first game or two. There's a chance he might not still be with the team. I, I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. But that's still kind of up in the air. But if he is with this team, that dude is a legit running back. He's as good as there is in the league. And now they do lose Wandale Robinson and Josh Ali, their top two receivers. But they got a couple guys coming in at tran- as transfers. Talk about them more in detail when we do their scouting the enemy episode. But there are some pieces on that offense. And on defense, they're not insanely talented. They never really have been. They had a couple good players here and there, but they've never been like crazy talented on defense. I'm just, I'm just, this year, I just don't know if they have some of the difference makers. Like they had Josh Allen in years past. I don't know if they have those kind of guys, but let me just put this out there. When is the last time Mark Stoops put a bad defense out there on the field? Like really? They've been top five in the SEC in scoring defense each last four years. They've been top 25 nationally in scoring defense through the last four years. I think they have enough players on defense and are well coached enough to sneak up and, and potentially challenge us, to really, really challenge us in that game on the road in Lexington late in November. Like every team on our schedule, we are better than them. Like we are more talented than them. No question in my mind about that. We are far more talented and we should not lose to them, whether it's on the road late this season or not. We should not lose to a team like Kentucky. But more than anything, it's the situation. It's the situation, just like with Mississippi State, that has me concerned. We're better than Mississippi State. We're better than Kentucky. But the situations have me concerned. For Mississippi State, my concern lies in the fact I think it's the classic trap game, ultimate trap game, trap game extraordinaire. Kentucky, I don't think, is as much of a trap game because I think their record will be better than Mississippi State when we play them, and I think that will have our attention. Again, they could very well be sitting there number two in the SEC East, and this could be a hyped-up game. Very well could be. So I don't think we're going to overlook Kentucky. My concern is that this is the tail end of the toughest stretch of our season. So we end the season with rivalry games against Florida, obviously in Jacksonville, home against Tennessee, then back-to-back row games to close out SEC play at Mississippi State, at Kentucky. Then you have Tech, which, I mean, I guess you got to mention them. Tech's there too. But those four games, four of our last five games, from Florida to Kentucky, 
the, I guess, to close out SEC play, that's the toughest stretch of our entire season. It's a grind. That is a grind. Now, you could have tougher stretches. Sure, yeah, of course you could. But still, with the schedule we have in front of us, we can only play who we have in front of us, that's the toughest stretch of our 2022 schedule, in my opinion. And Kentucky is the tail end of that. That's a grind. There's the potential that we could be worn down by that point and be primed for a letdown game. Maybe we're not healthy by that point. Again, it's on the road in a very underrated environment for a big game. So for those reasons, I have Kentucky as the most difficult game on our 2022 schedule. Again, I can see an argument for Mississippi State. I can see an argument for Tennessee. I went back and forth. Those top three, I shuffled them around a couple of different times in preparation for this episode, but I settled on Kentucky. I'm not necessarily in love with that pick, but that's what I settled on. So there you have it, guys. Let's recap this real quickly for you. Coming in at number 12, the least difficult game on Georgia's 2022 schedule, Samford. Number 11, Vanderbilt. Number 10, Georgia Tech. Number 9, Kent State. Number eight, let's get back into SEC play at Missouri. Number seven, Auburn at home. Number six, Florida and the cocktail party. Number five, at South Carolina. Number four, Oregon to kick off the season in Atlanta. Number three, Tennessee at home. Number two, trap game extraordinaire at Mississippi State. And the number one, at Kentucky. That's how I see it going into the season. And we will talk about each of these teams far more in the month and a half to come. We have the Scout and the Enemy series starting mid-July. July 15th is when it's set to kick off. We'll open things up with Oregon. We'll move down the schedule. But I just want to give you guys a little bit of a primer on each of these teams. And obviously, we'll dive into more detail with them in each of their individual Scout and the Enemy episodes. I think this might be the longest episode that I've ever recorded for this podcast. We're pushing an hour and 20 minutes right now. My voice is gone. It's about to die. I've got a couple more episodes to record today and tomorrow to kind of pre-record those for when I'm on vacation. Make sure you guys have content. So I'm gonna get out of here, go get a drink, soothe my throat a little bit. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode because I had one hell of a time sitting here just talking some ball, looking forward to the 2022 season. And there's much more content like this to come the rest of the summer leading in to the 2022 football season. So thank you guys for listening. Make sure to check back next week, whether I'm on vacation or not, content will be there for you guys. So make sure to be back and check that out. And don't forget, I still have a couple of announcements for you guys that I think you are going to enjoy. I know I told you guys earlier in the week that those announcements were going to be made today on the show, but I'm having to push it back just a couple more days. Two of the announcements are set, ready to go. One of them, we still have to put the finishing touches on it, making that happen, but that will happen. I'm going to tell you, it's going to happen by the time our next episode rolls around next week. So just a little tease for you. Those announcements are coming. I'm ex- I'm really excited about all of them, and I, I think you guys will be too. So you got that to look forward to as well. But have a fantastic weekend, guys. Fourth of July this weekend. I'll be hopping on a plane on the 4th of July. Hope you guys are having fun in the sun, doing whatever it is that you enjoy doing with your family, friends. Have a great time. Be safe. Have fun. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>